Luke asks a question about certainty. Uh, how can we be certain about the things of Jesus? Uh, so have a, we might pray. We're going to ask God that he'll help us uh, as we do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you've given us your word and that you speak to us and that you speak to us clearly. I uh, just pray now that you'll help us kind of in this craziness of the first week of uni where there's so much going on, new timetables, new people to meet, new friends, big assignments coming up. Help us just to take the next 20 minutes or so to concentrate on what you have to say to us. May your spirit be with us and speak to our hearts tonight. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you all know the story of the Titanic. Whether you uh, learn about it through reading a book, maybe you watched an SBS documentary, maybe uh, the way you learned about the Titanic was by watching Rose and Jack declare their love for each other in that very, very long movie called Titanic. (laughs) I'm not sure how you learn about the Titanic, but however you did, you'd know that it sunk. The Titanic was a sinking ship. But that wasn't what people expected. Uh, Back in 1912, people were certain that the Titanic was an unsinkable ship. I've got a quote from the captain. Captain Edward Smith said this about the Titanic. He said, I cannot imagine any condition which would cause this ship to founder. Maybe I should put on an English accent. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. That was the captain of the ship. Perhaps more famously, an unknown uh, crew member of the Titanic said this, God himself could not sink this ship. (laughs) Tempting fate, possibly. (laughs) See, if you were around in April of 1912, there would have been one certain fact going around in the news. One headline. The Titanic is unsinkable. It was a certain fact. The crew member uh, who said that quote about the God couldn't sink the ship, he was certain of that fact, wasn't he? The, um, the captain, he was certain. These guys were so certain of that fact that they put their life in this ship's hands. They, they boarded the Titanic. They trusted it, that it would get them to their destination, but it only got halfway. I don't know if you've got any bad bonbon jokes uh, from Christmas times. Uh, we used to always sit around at Christmas table and we'd have these open up bonbons and, you know, get a little joke inside. My favourite one was always this. What do you get when you cross the Titanic and the Atlantic Ocean? About halfway. <laughs> um, the Titanic, it only got halfway. People were so certain this was going to be the unsinkable ship that it turned out to be a sinking ship that led thousands of people to their death. The question I want us to wrestle with tonight is this question of certainty. What can we be certain of? What can we know uh, that is so certain that it's actually worth trusting? What in the world is so certain that it would actually be a good thing to get on board with it and to put our lives in its hands? Uh, If you've got your outline, we're up to point number two. Uh, That's good if you want to take notes. Um, Point number, it's actually no numbers there, is there? What can we be certain of is where we're up to. 
See, sometimes I think there's actually some things that we can't be certain of. There's some little things out there that are just kind of tricky. I was in Winter Park uh, in Sydney not that long ago and I walked past one of those weird mirrors. You know those funny mirrors that are kind of bent? Um, I went past one of those and I looked at it with my eyes that I trust, my eyes, and I looked really, really tall and skinny. And then I looked at another mirror and I looked really, really short and very wide. And it kind of makes you question, well, can you, what can you trust? I wasn't too sort, certain about that. I don't know if you, if you study philosophy, anyone doing philosophy here? No philosophers. Oh, it's gone. Well, that's a shame. I, well, I'll, I'll have to scrap philosophy illustrations out of sermons now. I, um, I used to read a bit of philosophy. There's a story in, in, in philosophy about a guy who went out on a boat and he got an oar and he went to row and he put the oar in the water and he freaked out because it all looked bent. And, and philosophers, they argue over this. Well, which is the real oar? The bent one or the straight one? Which one can we trust? Can we even trust our eyes? Well, I want to say I think we can. I think we can trust our eyes. Uh, I think you guys can trust that I actually am here. You can believe that. <laughs> you, can, you can believe. You can. You can do that. You can believe that I'm here tonight. You can believe that I exist. Um, I'm not really three foot tall and four foot wide. I actually am kind of normally shaped. Um, you can trust that I exist because. We actually can trust our senses. Um, in fact, you guys could actually be called eyewitnesses of the fact that I exist. More than that, it's actually possible that um, if you went out this week, I'm not really expecting that you would do this, but you could go out this week, find a friend and say, hey, there's this guy Steve, and, and I saw him with my own eyes. And they could come to know that I exist. I don't do that um, this week, but... I reckon if you did, people would say, well, who cares? Right? I don't care if you know a guy called Steve. There's lots of Steve's out there. Um, Steve's just a normal guy. Um, but this is the kind of thing that Luke's talking about in these first four verses. Uh, Luke is drawing our attention. He's saying, um, these are eye- he's drawing our attention to think about eyewitness accounts. Uh, eyewitness testimony, this kind of trusting of our senses. Have a look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. These first four verses, they're the introduction of, uh, or the prologue to Luke's account of Jesus. And it's here in these first four verses that he tells us two really, impo- two really important things. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, he tells us that lots of other people have written about Jesus. Lots of other people have written about Jesus. That's what 1 and 2 is about. In verses 3 and 4, he tells us that he himself decided to write about Jesus. That's the broad kind of breakup of these first four verses. So have a look at verses 1 and 2. Let me read it out. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke says right up, right up front, that his book that we're going to look at this semester, it's not the only thing written about Jesus. No, there's actually lots of other things that have been written about Jesus. Many people who have received eyewitness testimony have written things down about Jesus. Luke's not alone here. 
In fact, by the time Luke wrote his book, uh, probably around 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus uh, had died and rose, there were already a number of different accounts floating around. Some of these accounts could have been quite small, just fragments, little stories of uh, things that people had written. Um, Well, they could have been quite large. Luke most likely had the Gospels of Matthew and Mark in front of him when he wrote his own account. But these other accounts that Luke talks about uh, are accounts that were handed down uh, by people who had seen Jesus. They were handed down by eyewitnesses, verse 2. People who saw Jesus' miracles, people who, who heard Jesus' teachings, people who touched his resurrected body, they orally handed down what they knew of Jesus to the next generation who then wrote it down. Now, initially, this might seem like a bit of a problem. A 30-year gap between when Luke was written and the events of Jesus. 30 years seems like a long time. I mean, for us in the kind of age of instant communication, um, I could take a photo of you guys, stick it on Facebook, and the world would know about it straight away. If I waited 30 years and then took a photo, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) But 30 years can seem like a long time. Some people want to say that the Gospels are... Actually, maybe they're a little bit like a form of Chinese whispers. You guys all played Chinese whispers? You know, a game where you sit in a circle and you someone has a message right at the start and they whisper it and then kind of gets all confused along the way and then... How can we be sure that the Gospels are actually true? That in this 30-year time period they're not, they haven't been corrupted or exaggerated or something like that? Well, I think... What we need to do is we actually have to understand the culture of the day. See, in the first century, information wasn't passed on like we pass it on today. It's estimated that only about 10% of people were able to write back then. So typing up a letter on your laptop wouldn't have been an option. Um, If only 10% of people were able to read and write, then... It means 90% of people, the best way they communicated was orally, speaking. That's how information was passed on in the first century. Information was passed on as people heard a message and then they repeated it out loud and often. This method, people have done a lot of studies and it, it actually proves more accurate than we actually believe. People hear a message, speak it, and speak it again. And it's incredibly accurate. It's not like Chinese whispers. See, if the Gospels were like Chinese whispers, we may as well forget about it. We may as well go home. If they're just a fairy tale, then it's pointless us even being here. But understanding the culture of the day is helpful. In addition to this, 30 years is actually not that long. 30 years actually allows, is in the time frame that the original eyewitnesses would have still been alive. This kind of acts as a safeguard for this oral testimony. 
you know when you play Chinese whispers and you, you kind of go around a circle and by the end it's all confused? What do you do to work out what the original message was? Well, you, you, yeah, ask, the guy, you ask the guy who started it, don't you? Within 30 years, the, those original eyewitnesses were still around. Jesus' disciples still would have been around. They could have checked it out. They act as an oral safeguard for this testimony. That's good. There's lots of questions about the Gospels and their accuracy. I've actually got some things. If you want to think about that question more, because that's about all I'm going to say about it, but if you want to think about that, there's a whole stack of these. They say, can we trust what the Gospels say about Jesus? I've written by a friend of mine. It's kind of nuts. I like plugging my friend's things. But this is a great little resource. Take them. They're free. If you want to think about it. Well, come and chat to me. That's cool as well. See, the Gospels, they're actually not a 30-year game of Chinese whispers. They're actually reliable. As Christians, that's what we need to believe. Because we believe in a God who acts in history. So history is important. And that's what Luke says was handed down. He says that there was, there was a message handed down. He doesn't tell us what the exact content of that message was, uh, but he describes it for us. Have a look at verse 1 there. This is what Luke says was handed down. Verse 1, he calls it the things that have been fulfilled among us. There's two key words I want us to think about there. First, I want us to think about the word fulfilled, what that's about, and then have a look at the word among us. See, fulfilled, I think, is important because it shows us that Luke isn't writing because he's got an agenda. Luke isn't writing because he's got a particular slant that he wants to say. No, Luke is writing to show us God's agenda. He's writing to show us how Jesus fulfills God's plan. Uh, Throughout the Gospel that we're going to look at this semester, you can see constantly how Luke quotes the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfills God's plan. If you know your Old Testament, you'd know that God had a beautiful plan. God created the world and he put people in it to rule it under him. These first people, Adam and Eve, were to rule the world under God. They were to listen to God, to obey him. If they did, the world would have flourished and been beautiful. The problem was that they didn't listen. They snubbed God. They said, rack off God. They said, we know how to rule this world. We're going to rule it without you. So in an act of rebellion, they followed their own desires and sin entered the world. Only three chapters into the Bible and God's plan had gone to ruin. Man had turned away from God. They said, God, we don't want you in our life. So what did God do? Well, he gave them what they want. He gave them what they chose. He said, if you don't want to be with me, I'm going to cast you out of my presence. He kicked them out of the garden. He kicked them out into a world of sin, a world that is hard, a world where there is pain and suffering, a world that ends in death. And if God didn't intervene, that would have been it for people. For to reject God is to reject life. And to reject God is to choose death. 
right? Despite being rejected, God, because he loved mankind, because he loved his world, he stepped in and he made a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God said that although mankind had sinned and rejected him, he would send a saviour. God made a promise that a man would come who would reverse the curse of sin. That a man like Adam would come who would defeat sin, overthrow it, and bring blessing and life back to the world. And so the rest of the Old Testament is kind of this working out of how that's going to be fulfilled. It's kind of how or who will fulfill that promise. Along the way we learn that that this person, this saviour, will come from the line of Abraham and David. He'll be an Israelite. He'll be a king. He'll be a prince of peace. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be one who brings blessing and life. He'll be one who suffers for the sake of his people. These are the things that the Old Testament teaches us. So we're watching constantly to see who's going to fulfil that. And Luke says Jesus. Luke says Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the fulfilment of that promise. He's the guy that's going to reverse the curse. He's the guy that's going to take sin away. That's why Luke's gospel is called a gospel. Because it's good news. It's news worth telling. The longed-for saviour, the awaited one, has finally come. It's good news. It's news worth telling. It's not good advice. I think sometimes people talk about Christianity as if it's just a good option, a good way to live. A way to be nice and fair so that people might like you. But that's not the core of what Christianity is all about. No, the core of Christianity is this, that the promised saviour has come. Jesus has defeated sin And life can be found in his name. That's the gospel. In him, the promise is fulfilled. That word fulfilled there in Luke 1, it shows us that Luke's gospel isn't his own agenda. But it's all going to be about the fulfilment of God's salvation plan. The second word, among us, is important as well. The among us shows us that this salvation can be historically checked out. These things, Luke says, they weren't done in a corner. No, they were performed out in the open. They were public. Luke says they were done among us, among people. Jesus walked and talked with people. He didn't hide in a corner. In fact, he was so public that people flocked to him that he might do a miracle for them. He wasn't like a bit like someone like Osama bin Laden who kind of hides in a cave and then kind of runs things out of that. No, Jesus was out in the open. He was in the public eye. People saw what he did. He would have been on YouTube if it existed back then. The miracles, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, they're all historically verifiable because they were done among people. They weren't done in a corner. They weren't done in secret. So with all that in mind, the fulfilment, Jesus is the saviour, the among us, the people have seen it. Luke says this, verse 3, 
since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke has gathered these sources handed down. He's investigated things himself. And now he deemed it good to write an orderly account for a guy called Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. I might be him calling right now. <laughs> uh, he, he could be a Roman official. Uh, he could be one of Luke's close friends. We don't know. So there's no point speculating, really. We know who Luke is. Luke was a companion of Paul. Uh, he went on Paul on his missionary journeys. Um, Paul, who took the, the gospel to the Gentiles. We also know Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a smart guy. He knew how to investigate. He knew how to write. And most importantly, he knew why he wrote. He wrote so that we, like Theophilus, might know with certainty about the things that have been taught, about the fulfilment that comes in Jesus. So whoever Theophilus was, we know that he'd been taught taught about Jesus. So Luke writes this gospel to show Theophilus that what he'd been taught was true. That in fulfilment of the scriptures, Jesus is the Saviour. You want to know a, a line, a carryaway line for what Luke's all about? That's it. In fulfilment of scripture, Jesus is the Saviour. That's what Luke's about. But Luke doesn't just say that, does he? He could have saved a lot of ink. He could have saved a lot of time if he just wrote that down. If he just said, Theophilus, what you've heard about Jesus is true, the end. He didn't do that though, did he? Now he writes a whole story. He writes this massively long story about Jesus' life. There's the birth, the, the miracles, the teachings, the death, the cross, the ascension, the resurrection. They're all in there. Not in that order. I got it wrong then. But Luke kind of puts all these pieces together. It's a little bit like a puzzle. There's all these pieces of information about Jesus. All these stories that he puts in order. So that when we read it, we start seeing the picture. We start seeing the picture that Jesus is the Saviour. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're running a bit of a tagline with this sermon series. It, it's, the tagline is this, uncover, see for yourself. Uh, we've called it that because we believe that that's what Luke wants us to do. He wants us to start uncovering who Jesus really is. He wants you to start seeing Jesus as the saviour for yourself. So can I encourage you this, this semester to read through Luke. Read through Luke with us. Read with the purpose of seeing who Jesus is. Don't bring your own ideas about who Jesus is. Try to listen to what Luke says. Look at the picture that he gives us. The picture of who Jesus is. What he's done and most importantly, what that means for us. See, Luke gives us his purpose statement in 1 verse 4, so that we might know the certainty of the things we've been taught 
so that you might know with certainty that Jesus is the Saviour. Luke wants us to know with certainty. We've talked a bit about the accuracy of the Gospels tonight, about how they've been handed down from eyewitnesses. Um, That might help give you some certainty. We've established that the oral communication is pretty good. That might give you some certainty. But my question is, is that enough? Is that enough to believe that Jesus is the Saviour? Is that enough to believe that he could be the one who could overthrow all the suffering and pain and sorrow in the world? Does that kind of historical accuracy do it for you? The promise is that he's the one that will bring blessings and life that never ends. How do we know that Jesus isn't just another sinking ship? How do we know that he's not just one who looks certain, but in the end is going to let us down? Well, Luke says, I think, if you want to know with certainty that Jesus is a saved, you've got to put the whole piece of the puzzle together. See, Luke's a really clever writer. It fascinates me that he doesn't put these two words together, no and certainty. He doesn't put them together until he actually gets to his next volume in Acts. Because that's when the puzzle's been complete. After we've seen all of Jesus' life and ministry. See, it's not the miracles of Jesus. It's not his teachings. It's not even his death. That gives us certainty. Now, a miracle worker who died is still dead. It's not until after Jesus has been raised from the dead that Luke says again that we can know with certainty. It comes in Acts chapter 2, at the climax of a speech that Peter made. Peter made this great long speech about Jesus' resurrection. And the very climax of the speech, he says this, Therefore, because of this, because of Jesus' resurrection, let all Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You want to know with certainty that Jesus is the Saviour? Luke says, look at the fact that this guy rose from the dead. Man rising from the dead is what Luke wants us to look at. Historically, it stands up as well. It's verifiable that Jesus' resurrection wasn't done in a corner. At one time, he appeared to over 500 people. The disciples touched him, put their hands in his wounds. It's no fairy tale. Luke wants to tell us that if you get on board with Jesus, he's no sinking ship. He's a saviour. Unlike the Titanic, which kind of looks so secure and so strong, Jesus, who possibly for you looks quite weak, isn't, because he's been raised from the dead. So if you put your trust in Jesus, you won't drown in the sea of judgment that you deserve. 
No, you'll be safe in that. You'll sail safe through to eternal life. Because Jesus drowned in our place under the judgment of God. He saved us from that. That's why Luke writes. Friends, Jesus is no sinking ship. He's a risen saviour. It's a certain fact. The question is, will you trust him? Will you get on board with him? Will you put your life in his hands? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes it's so easy for us to just get involved in how the Gospels were written and how they were put together that we forget about the great message that Luke wants to tell us. And he wants to tell us about a Saviour who died on a cross for us and who is raised from the dead and lives forever. Father, I just pray that you would help us to trust Jesus, to put our faith in him. Amen.